Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP as we ease on into WIP Sunday. And yes, it's dark out there, and no, your clock's not broken. We're into daylight saving time, and your clock should reach 7.01. If not, get up and fix it. And while you're fixing it, listen to us here on 94 WIP Hot Conversation. And we're going to get right to work. President Donald Trump is all about creating jobs, he says. And certainly, one place where jobs get created a lot is in the prison industrial complex. The United States spends approximately $80 billion a year on incarcerating 25% of the world's prison population. And when we talk about pretrial incarceration in lieu of bail, we talk of parole and probation. The numbers and the costs become even more astounding. And with me this morning to help us get a perspective on that is my guest, Linda Mancillis, Ph.D., her new book, Presidents in Mass Incarceration, Choices from the Top, Repercussions at the Bottom. Good morning, Linda Mancellis. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. Linda, what led you to become interested in this issue? Well, I was doing my Ph.D. studies at American University, and I began looking first at the high incarceration rate of women. Women were being incarcerated um, at higher rates. And then I started looking at it very closely, and it wasn't just women. The issue is much bigger than women. Uh, we are incarcerating, like you said, 2.3 million people in jail right now, and that was just an astounding number. And I just uh, started looking at it and became more and more interested in it and want to know what caused this. Well, certainly for women, you think it's a case of nice girls don't, and if they do, let's punish them? Well, you know, um, what has happened is that, that men oftentimes have, um, that are incarcerated, have some uh, ways to deal, and they can, they can, you know, turn in people and they can get, um, get some uh, uh, relaxation on their sentence. And women don't generally have that power. Right, they they are incarcerated because they're with um, a mate or somebody, and so they're in, they will be incarcerated in higher rates. And that's what I that's what I first started looking at. But you know, right now it's most it's mainly African Americans and uh, Hispanics that are being um, incarcerated. And so I am Hispanic, so this was a very interesting uh, thing to me to see what we were doing here. You know, we're known as um, Prison America right now. Uh, and this is a thing that can be corrected, and we need to start looking at it and uh, and um, have solutions to these problems of, of the mass incarceration in America. And you're not just talking about women in your book, are you? Oh no, I'm talking about about males and and you know everybody. You know, whenever you're looking at our prison population, how it's grown over you know 500 percent over the last 40 years. You know, why have we done this to ourselves? And you know, it's lawmakers who have done it, and that's why I began into looking at what actually. Uh, presidents have done to increase the incarceration rate. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Republican or you're Democrat. This has happened under all administrations. And it probably even becomes more astounding if we talk about juveniles and institutions for committing crimes. Definitely. We are, you know, we're, we're in, um, you know, drugs are, 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 have 40% of our prison population is due to drugs. And you know that that includes our, our young people. And of course, with our marijuana laws and this sort of thing. So, you know, this, this can be corrected. And this is what I'm trying to look at and say, lawmakers, what are we doing to, um, to increase incarceration? And please, let's stop it. You know, it, it, it can be stopped. It's a societal problem, but our lawmakers and our people 
should know how to understand what the what the high rate of incarceration is costing America, not only in dollars, but in human life and human uh, possibility. Absolutely. Now, when we look at incarceration, there's, of course, the federal system, and those laws are made by Congress and signed by the president. And then there's the state systems made by state legislatures and signed by governors. Right. You paint a broad, broad brush, though, don't you, saying presidents in mass incarceration? What do they have to do what happens in a given state? Well, you know, uh, I look at presidential leadership, right? Uh, and President Trump is a really good example. What is President Trump doing, for example? Who does he appoint as his attorney general? Jeff Sessions. Well, Jeff Sessions is one of the largest law and order um, attorney generals that we've had. We know what he's about. You know, I'll lock him up and throw away the key basically, is, is what he has um, always been responsible for. I lived in Alabama for 20 years under Jeff Sessions, and I know. So, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, I love your part, the, 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 what you just had on, on, your, on your show about being reflective. Our lawmakers need to be reflective. What, are, what laws, whether it's state or federal, are they doing to reduce incarceration? Now, there are some states, and I live in Georgia, which our governor, Governor Deal, has looked at justice reform but you know it's popular for uh election seeking politicians to talk about being tough on crime you know tough on crime do uh do the crime do the time you know but what is it doing to our nation as a whole and how much is it costing us is the question here um this is in fact very true and what i think they forget is you can put a thousand people in jail Unless they're murderers and not even just murderers, they're likely to get out again. And what are they going to come out as? That's exactly right. We have turned away from trying to be a rehabilitation nation, right? Let's let's look at crime and let's see what causes crime and let's try to rehabilitate. Uh, we are not doing that. In fact, we kind of have never done that. <laughs> never done that. The prison system hasn't has not done that. But let's look at it reflectively and let's look and see how we can uh, you know get these people back on the right path of, of of life. And you know, a lot of most of our our people that are in jail are are nonviolent offenders. Okay, nonviolent drug offenders. So you know this this problem again can be solved, and we can reduce the incarceration if we have a little bit of um, uh, policies that look more at trying to uh, rehabilitate these, and it can be done, but it takes time, Peter, and it does take money, and it takes commitment on the part of our lawmakers, and that, that's the problem here. You know, they think it's a quick fix to put people in jail. Well, it's not, and this is what's caused us to have 2.3 million people in jail right now. Now, you offer us a historical perspective on the issue in terms of presidents, don't you? I, I certainly do. I start with Lyndon Baines Johnson, who, um, you know, he started his safe streets, and he was under pressure to kind of uh, uh, calm down the chaos of the 1960s, right? And so he started first federal intervention into crime control. Before that, the states had been mostly responsible for, as you, you know, we mentioned before, the, the federal um, initiatives to, to stop crime really had an impact on the, on the uh, growth of the, uh, of the prison industrial complex. And then, you know, our president, President Nixon, President Reagan, you know, they had the, the, the war on crime, the war on drugs, all of this has helped build our, our prison population. Sam, we talked about a war on drugs, but looking at it from the other side, 
people out there doing drugs, if they can't afford them themselves, they're stealing. And if they're stealing, they're likely to hit somebody on the head to get some money. Yes, and so that's, you know, we've never looked at why this happens. You know, why are people like, turning to drugs? Why are people, um, you know, committing crimes? And I think that, you know, again, the process of trying to stop crime, but our, our crime rate has fallen from the 1960s. Our crime rate has con- uh, continued to fall, right, except for the, drug- for the drugs. And so right now we have a very low crime rate. So why wouldn't we go back and look at our prison systems? And many of the states are doing this. Many of the states are doing this. Why are we putting people in jail? And how long are these stiff uh, sentences? You know, Bill Clinton and his three strikes and you're out. <laughs> you know, we're all familiar with that just put a you know a ton of people in jail um and so and then in president um clinton has even admitted i overshot the mark <laughs> was what is is his direct quote i overshot the mark and i and he's back back from it you can see quotes all over the um uh if you google it you know what he's trying to do and saying i made a mistake but you know these presidents make mistakes and once they do that it's very hard to change the system back mm-hmm. How, though, do presidents, when they put people in office, like an attorney general or whoever? Yeah, well, you know, one of, I, as I was looking at that, you know, Jimmy Carter, president from Georgia, who, who nobody really even pays attention to until he started his human, uh, humanity um, work, he was the only president that actually reduced incarceration. While Jimmy Carter was in in um, in office, uh, the prison population went down. Okay, he was a visionary in terms of mass incarceration. Um, and so, you know, we have had a president that did have that visionary um, uh, uh, focus, but he also was not paid attention to. He just wasn't. It was much more effective for. Presidents like Nixon and Reagan, the Cone, war on crime, war on drugs, uh, Bill Clinton, war on gangs. You know, this, this tough talk is very popular with the American public. And this is the problem, you know. American public is not quite aware of what actually is going on. They don't pay close enough attention to what's going on. Meanwhile, their tax dollars are being wasted on, you know, not trying to educate and reform people, but putting them in jail and building the prison industrial complex. And it is, that is a hard nut to crack, let me tell you, because that's profit, right? And whenever you have these prisons moving into communities, that's jobs, right? Right. And so, and so, you know, it's hard for people to sort of understand. It may be jobs, but is it the right kind of jobs that we want to do in America? Are we investing in, in the good of people or in imprisonment? Well, even the most hardened conservative might want to consider asking the question, and what am I getting for that $80 billion? Exactly, exactly. And conservative, again, at the state level, uh, conservatives have been looking at this because, again, it's about money, right? <laughs> it's about how we're spending our, our, um, our tax dollars. So that part uh, has actually been um, sort of embraced by conservatives, especially at the state level, where they want to, you know, they don't want to spend their money on, on prisons anymore. So this, is, this has been a slight change, but it's just, it's, it's, it's just so slow um, in getting these people to pay attention because no politician wants to be, uh, be called or labeled soft on crime. 
<laughs> Nobody wants that. They called Jimmy Carter. It was the first time they used it. He was soft on crime, and he got a terrible reputation from that, right? But um, but this, you know, he wasn't really soft on crime. What we want to say now is be smart on crime. Be smart on crime. And I work for Representative Bobby Scott um, as a congressional assistant. And you know, Mr. Scott has been fighting for years to reduce the prison population, and uh, mostly, and, and with, along with the juvenile justice. Uh, and so there are our legislators who are interested in it, but it's been a slow road. And certainly, though, going back to something I said at the very beginning, a lot of people are saying prisons are an economic development issue. Build, mm-hmm. a, build a prison and fill it up, but build that prison in the middle of nowhere and you bring an economic boom to a small town. No. That's exactly right. And, you know, we are a capitalist nation. <laughs> and, you know, we like that bottom line. You know, we can, we, we can spend money and we can, you know, we, we, can, give, we, can, we can provide jobs. But, you know, that is a, is, a, is a short-sighted view of what we should be doing. You know, and, and we can do other things. We can, we can make it more, more productive and, um, and less punitive in terms of, of, of what we're doing to, to our society as a whole. This has not been a good thing. Building prisons <laughs> has not been a good thing. It may have prov- provided jobs in the short term, but, you know, incarcerating people. And it's a big business. These these uh, these prisons, you know, they get money on how many people they have on jail per day, okay? So they're in the business of incarcerating people. And so, you know, the, 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 we just need to see change to, to change this. And let's, let's get people out of jail and, um, and, and towards a more productive society. I don't know if it's still the case, but at one point it was the case that if you had some money to invest, put it into a company that deals in private prisons because it was a growth industry. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, um, it, it, it's amazing how many prisons that we actually have in America that are. And we have um, 1,719 state prisons. We have 102 federal prisons. We have 900 juvenile correction facilities. And I can just go on and on, on giving you all these numbers in terms of how many jails we have. Three thousand and uh, uh, over three thousand jails. You know, we even have Indian country jails, uh, seventy-six Indian country jails. Um, so you know, again, it's a, it, it's prison America. <laughs> can can we not turn that around and make that education America or something else? I mean, you know, um, I, I teach um, um, at Georgia Gwinnett College, and I teach at freshmen mostly. And, you know, the other day one of my students said to me, Professor Mencius, is America the greatest country on earth now? And that, that question really, and what we were talking about, of the prison population, and I think this is a question we need to ask ourselves, are we? the greatest country on earth. What are we doing to make our country great? Are we incarcerating? We have more people in jail than Russia. We have more people in jail than China. Let's back back and see what we can do to correct this situation. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Linda Mancilis. Ph.D., author of the new book, Presidents in Mass Incarceration, Choices at the Top, Repercussions at the Bottom. We'll be back after these messages. Linda, you stay with me. We'll be back soon. And we're back, and we're here on WIP Sunday with Dr. Linda Mancillis, Ph.D., 
associate professor of political science and author. Her new book, that new book um, about mass incarceration and the influence presidents have, presidents in mass incarceration, choices at the top, repercussions at the bottom. My name's Peter Solomon. Linda, um, it seems to me that it's just not get tough on crime, presidential decisions and choices, but it's other things as well. Let's, let, let's, let's deal with welfare. Let's deal with medical assistance. Let's deal with aid to schools. Let's deal with all those things that, if they're not taken care of, contribute to crime. What do you think? Well, you know, this is true. You know, our education system um, has some has some problems, and and you know, but you know, I, I I really want to. The book concentrates on on leadership, on presidential leadership, and what our leaders do. And you know, they are responsible for our budgets, our state budgets, our federal budgets, and where that money goes. And so, you know, we have had a lack of investment in things like education and things and and in job training and that type of thing. You know. Um, Along with when I mentioned Bill Clinton in terms of his um, his three strikes and you're out, he also you know pulled back on welfare and that type of thing. You know, I deal with students every day, and you know the cost of college is unbelievable these days. Um, and and you know, we're trying to get uh, uh, people to go to technical school so they will have a, a good wage. But there's so much pressure on our on our children to to um, to be able to find a job and have a good job and a living wage. It's not easy for them, right? It's not easy, and so we have all these complications of uh, you know the, the, the basically the safety net's gone. They're out there, and they have to make it some way. Now, turning to crime is not, or drugs is not what we want our young people to do. But you know, are we? I think we have to ask the question: Are we investing in our young people? Oh, do we, you know? Are we helping them out enough? Are we? Are you know? And you know, I do believe that government has a responsibility to. Um, for the general welfare, um, you know, we the people, we need that preamble, and we need our, our 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 government to back us up. You know, again, we know that we're a capitalist nation, and we know that business is important. But at the same time, we need to be investing in our young people more by giving them more support in terms of of of, of education and that type of thing, especially with the high cost of college today and and going to school. Um, you know, I have students that work forty hours a week, try to go to school and have all kind of family responsibilities. And so I think we should be helping these young people, not hurting them. Um, you know, I think a good example is the, are the marijuana laws. You know, are, do we really want to put people in jail and in prison um, for smoking marijuana these days? You know, I think we need to look back and say, what are our public policies? Are our public, public policies doing us more harm than good at this point? And um, but I think we have leaders that still see advantage at pushing these these more stricter, harsher, um, harsher laws. And certainly, you make an important point about um, jobs. In that, to get a decent wage anymore, in my parents' day, and even in my day, a high school diploma was okay. Now you've got to have a college diploma to get any kind of decent job. If not, you're cleaning toilets or frying hamburgers or McDonald's. <laughs> And, that is true. And can't barely make ends meet and running to the food cupboard if not for food stamps. Um, That's exactly right. There, there's so many pressures that we, that we put on our young people these days. And I just, I feel, of course, being an educator, I feel like we should be helping instead of, you know, from, 
clamping down on these on these draconian laws, you know, laws that, that are so strict that just need to be, you know, just need to be tweaked a little bit, you know. Let's look, take a look back. And, of course, some states are doing this. Some states are saying, you know, we, we're tired of pe- putting people in jail. I was looking at statistics just recently, and almost 42% of, of the of people in jail are in jail for drug offenses. Now, you know, we don't want our populations to take drugs. We don't want. So what is the problem here? You know, do we need more more treatment centers? Do we need do we need other things? But I don't think that mass incarceration is the answer to this. And there's no is there drug treatment in jail, Linda? Did you find it? Well, there's not much, no. And, you know, and once people get out, are there any treatment programs to help them along once they get out? You, you just you can't expect that people who have these drugs or alcohol-related problems can, you know, be, be just put on the street and say, okay, now fend for yourself. We have to have a dedicated um, uh, attitude towards rehabilitation. And, again, that takes time and that takes money. And I don't think our politicians, they want to act, act like they have a fixed quit, you know, a, 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 um, a very uh, thick, uh, quick fix to this, and there's just not a quick fix. It's going to take a long time, and we're going to have to be really dedicated to doing this. But I think we're wasting our money on prisons. We're wasting our money on prisons. And can we turn that around to actually doing something that is more um, progressive and more um, has more better return on our dollars? And when you put a man in particular, or a woman, but a man in prison, you may be putting his spouse on welfare. You may be putting the children in the foster care system. You may be creating a mental health problem for the people still in the community who've got a loved one in prison. And the costs ripple and ripple and ripple. It's ripple. And, you know, once you have that on your record... There's a problem with employment then, right? Mm-hmm. Your opportunity, you know, who wants to hire a, a person who has a federal or state record in terms of crime? And so it's, it has a ripple effect in terms of, 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 of and, you know, just minor, minor um, uh, uh, offenses go on your record. And, 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 you know, that's another thing we're trying to do in terms of what exactly do we want to have have people responsible for the, for the rest of their life? <laughs> you know, uh, and so you're exactly right that, that that once you once you're in once you're in that prison system, it's almost impossible to get out um, of, of that of that uh, that descendancy. And you know, it just ruins your all opportunities that you have. And that's what some of these like our, our governor and and Georgia is trying to do, Governor Deal. You know, let's stop this downward descent, and let's try to get these people um, where they need to be and be more productive for American society. And when you put them back in the community on parole or on probation, these probation parole officers can have 100 or more cases and just try exactly. to keep, just trying to keep track of 100 people, what they're doing, let alone find them counseling and rehabilitative services in an overburdened social service system. It's getting the federal budget cut. Yeah, that, I was just going to say, yes, and that's where you come to the funding, okay? That's where you come to the funding. Again, we're spending our money on unproductive things like, like prison and jail where we could be doing things that, that actually provide people opportunities to, be, to come out of the system and make them more productive American citizens. And that, that, that is, again, that is hard for those, those type of, 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 of decisions take a long-term commitment. 
and we want a quick fix. And this is what's got us into this situation right now. It's trying of lawmakers not having the vision, not thinking about what, what impact and what are the consequences of these very strict laws that we, that we have now. Now, you know, nobody wants um, hardened criminals out on the street. We're not even talking about there. We're talking about the low, um, the low nonviolent offenders here, okay, that we can actually do something with, that we can get them to be more productive by just investing a little bit more in, our, in, in, the, um, in, in a more humane, humane way and not sending people to, um, to prison. Very true. Um... Who is the worst president in this, in terms of this issue? Well, who's the worst person? Well, you know, we have to take a lot of a lot of things into consideration. I just uh, I said that, um, uh, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson was the first. I call him the first um, prison entrepreneur because he really started um, federal intervention into um, into uh, our our correction justice criminal justice system. But you know, we had we had President Nixon who began the war on drugs, okay? We had Ronald Reagan who began the war on crime. And once that started and they had these huge federal programs, again, that could get money into into the states, once you set that money train, <laughs> it's really hard to stop. And so, you know, I think, again, the only person that I don't blame is Jimmy Carter. <laughs> He's the only person that I that I really can't play. Um, you know, President Obama, his um, uh, detention rate in terms of, of immigration, he built. You know, that was that, that that was a real problem. Increasing the detention of of, um, of illegal immigrants. Now, you know, of course, some of these people are just basically undocumented. And so, do we really want to put people who have not committed crimes um, in in jail? And so, that had a huge impact on increasing um, uh, our prison system in terms of detainees. And so, you know, our immigration laws are another problem. So, it's just not one thing or one person. It's actually a combination of the system. And and again, that's what I sort of blame presidents for in my book. What, what could presidents have done and what did they do to, um, to have these short-sighted policies that has built our prison population? And I think that's an important point you just made, Linda, in terms of detention of the immigration population, where families are r- ripped apart unexpectedly, didn't do anything except maybe come to country when they were children and didn't have a say when they were being brought, brought here undocumented and... Mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20 years later, along come the nice men and women from ICE saying, let's go. Oh, exactly. And, you know, um, again, I, I always think about another part of my, my um, impetus to write this book was I have students that are undocumented. You know, I have the dreamers. And we have a, we have a, a large population where I teach of dreamers who were brought here by their parents, okay, and um, they are not documented. We have invested millions of dollars in these students by educating them. We have sent them through our school system, okay? But then once they get out of school, they can't get jobs because they're undocumented. And you know, I, blame, I blame Congress for this, okay, because President Obama tried to do something in terms of the dreamers. Now, President, Clinton, um, President Trump has got a horrible – he's not done anything to help these dreamers. But we need to get these people who have been in the United States, who we have invested 
a lot of money in and a lot of time, and they are great people. I mean, I, I just love my DACA students there, but they are so you know they're always scared that something's going to happen where they are they're they're going to be be arrested or they're going to be sent to countries they don't even know um, anything about. Um, and so we need to really do something to fix this immigration problem and let these dreamers a pathway to citizenship. You know we don't give them something that they can work towards, not just say you know you're here calling them illegal aliens. I don't think any human being is an alien, frankly. <laughs> I think they're human beings, and these students especially, who are our American students, okay, who have been here a long time, we really need a pathway to citizenship for them. Absolutely. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We're more with Dr. Linda Mancillis, Ph.D., author of Presidents and Mass Incarceration, Choices at the Top, Repercussions at the Bottom. The WIP time, 734. And we're back here on WIP Sunday with Dr. Linda Mancillis, Ph.D., author of the book, Presidents in Mass Incarceration, Choices at the Top, Repercussions at the Bottom. My name's Peter Solomon. Linda, the, the economics of this make my head hurt, and I have to say it. Just in terms of that $80 billion that we spend keeping people in a cage, when they finally do get out, they go to an overburdened probation parole system, they come out very often owing restitution, owing court fines and costs with no real marketable skills because there's far fewer jobs in a prison than there are um, people who need the job training. Um, and in many jurisdictions, to help a budget along, they charge people for being on supervision. I know in Pennsylvania there was a fee of, I think it used to be, I don't know what it is now, but it used to be $25 a month for being on probation or parole. So you come out in a financial hall, you may have child support that's been court-ordered, and the court may be looking for you to put you in jail because you haven't paid your court-ordered child support. You may have a few traffic tickets, and the traffic people want you. So you're in a financial hall you're never going to get out of, except hit somebody on the head. This is true. And, you know, um, this is where I think uh, I am always a proponent of, a, of the American voter. It is very hard for the American voter to be um, to know what's going on and to be aware of what's going on. But these policies are made by government officials, right, and government officials who, um, who are oftentimes elected. And so I was um, I was going to lecture uh, this Friday um, on on at the uh, University of, um, of of Birmingham at uh, University of uh, Alabama at Birmingham, and they a student asked me a very important question. She said, "What are the key words I should be listening to whenever I'm fixing to go vote? Whenever I'm I'm going to elect a new um, a new politician or or uh, a, a, a voting booth?" And she said, "What are the key words to make it easy for me to understand?" what politicians mean. And I said, the, one of the very first things that you want to listen to is law and order. Is this a law and order candidate? If this is a law and order candidate, what kind of policies are they invoking? What kind of policies are they talking about? Like you just mentioned about these fines. and you know, That's made at, at a political level in terms of what has happened to these um, uh, gathering all this money, money for the states, by the way, right? <laughs> so it's profitable 
for these people to make these laws um, that, that put extra burdens on the citizens who commit crimes, okay? And so you're exactly right. So whenever you were thinking about, a lot of people don't want to think about voting and what repercussions we may have, but listen for what people are saying. Listen to what these the, the officials are saying in terms of what policies they are going to then be standing by. And are these policies although they may be tough on crime, are they costing us more money than we're willing to give? And, all, and, then, and then is this policy is keeping people in jail for longer and longer periods of time. And you're exactly right. What happens to poor people and working class people whenever they, they make a mistake and they have these exorbitant fines placed upon, they cannot get out from under it, Peter. They can't. And it's just a vicious cycle. And it, it, and it goes then from family member to family member, right? <laughs> um, and so it, it is a, it's a situation, again, though, that we can remedy if we pay close attention to what our public officials are doing. And, in fact, um, it gets really, really complicated because offenders, once they've come out of jail, can't vote very often. They're not allowed. That's, exactly. Exactly. And that's another thing. Who may, who who are making these laws? Who who are who are we electing that are that are making these policies that are also depriving people from citizenship rights? Okay, people don't even think about this. You know, we don't. We, we, it, like you said, it's so complicated that that these 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 hidden traps. Um, that we've fallen into, uh, our, our ordinary citizens don't even know about them, okay? And, and it's very hard for us to understand exactly this complicated system that has incarcerated 2.3 million people. Linda, is any jurisdiction doing it right, doing well, what they need to do? Yes, well, there's several. Um, um, right on Crime uh, is an organization that, that actually applauds um, states for doing um, uh, doing the right thing. Mississippi, for example, is looking very, very closely at their criminal justice laws. Louisiana is looking at their, their, their criminal justice laws. California, you know, uh, imprisonment was just over imprisonment. It just cost California just a, you know, a, a magnitude of problems. They're looking. So again, at the state level, they're being forced to, and they're being forced to because of the financial um, aspects of how much it's costing the states. And you know, and many of these are have, are conservative governors, like in Georgia, who are saying, "Listen, this is costing us way too much financially for us to be. We need to reform the system." So there are states, but again, it is a slow road. It is a slow road because again, politicians are afraid of looking soft on crime. It's interesting to me that you talk about Mississippi and Louisiana as two states who are moving in the right direction. We don't often think of those southern states as being the most progressive, shall we say? <laughs> in Oklahoma. Yes. So, so yes. So the, these states, again, though, it's a financial issue. I wish it was more than just a financial issue. I wish that they would turn. Yes, it's a financial issue. But it's also a moral and it's a societal issue. Okay, but, you know, as long as they do it, I don't care why they do it. <laughs> I don't care the motivation. But I think, I think we need to also recognize that we are doing as a society, what are we doing? You know, is it morally correct? And, 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 um, and, and finances is good, but 
let's let's be reflective again of what exactly our criminal justice system is supposed to do. Um, I um uh, t I did a study abroad in um in uh, the Netherlands, and the Netherlands really had a different way of looking at um, at crime and looking at um, imprisonment. And uh, I visited prisons in in in, um, in Netherlands, and um, again, prisoners were not treated inhumanely at that point. Um, they were, it was a more humane system. I think we need to step back and let's say, okay, what are we doing? Are we being a humane nation? Are, are, are we treating our prisoners in a humane way? You know, these supermax prisons, um, we've been called out by the United Nations in terms of our supermax prisons. So, um, you know, we just need to, to look at the whole sort of picture and let's be really reflective on what we're doing as a nation in terms of our, our uh, the prison industrial complex. Well, that's interesting. You talk about supermax prisons. Um, if you mix in the use of solitary confinement and the lack of physical affection, which everybody needs, which often translates into prison rape, mm -hmm. you got a real problem. Yes, sir, you do. And again, we've been called out by the United Nations in terms of our supermax prisons and the way we treat our, our prisoners. Um, and, you know, I, reform is the biggest word <laughs> that I can say. And then a rehabilitation. You know, not everybody can be rehabilitated. We know that. And, um, you know, back in the, in the 1980s, Angela Davis wrote a book called Are Prisons Obsolete? I don't know if you've ever ever heard of it or read it. Uh, not many people have. I make my, my my students and my honors classes read that just as a think outside the box. Think outside the box. Let's look at a different way of approaching long-term constant problems, okay? Not saying that, you know, that I don't know if prisons are obsolete or not. It seems to me that this day and time that we should be working towards that. Linda? Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Thank you. Then if I put you in Congress, what solutions would you propose? Oh, yes. I would, I would try my best um, uh, to get lawmakers to understand the repercussions of what their, the, the past laws have done. Um, again, it would be very difficult to move. Again, Bobby Scott of Virginia has been one of the, one of the premier champions of reducing the incarceration rate. And, you know, there's always this chance that we're going to move towards some sort of reform and then something happens and, and they lose interest in it. You know, it's not a real sexy issue to be talking about less prisons and less incarceration. If the American people had a better understanding of what was going on, I think it could be much more sexy than it is now. But, um, and we need, you know, we need strong lawmakers. Like, we need a strong president that will look at this and say, let's do something constructive. And we just have not had that leadership um, uh, in the present administration. So you have no hope during the present administration and the present Congress? Oh, I have no hope. I always have hope. <laughs> I always have hope. That's why I wrote my book. And, uh, you know, um, I wish President Trump would read my book. <laughs> but, um, you yeah, so there's always hope. And there are, there are champions out there, Republicans and Democrats, that know this is a problem that we need to address. Um, Right now, I, I, I don't know. Um, that, you know, again, the financial aspect is, is a real, real key element. But with somebody like Jeff Sessions as our uh, attorney general right now, 
I, I am sadly um, not looking forward to his administration and what President Trump might, might do. And his, they're law and order people, and that just means more incarceration to me. What's next for you, Dr. Linda Mansellis? What's next for me? <laughs> well, you know what? I, um, I'm interested in mass incarceration. I'm most interested in mass incarceration in terms of women. Uh, I, I, like, I like to study women in politics. I teach women in politics. So I'm probably going to go down the road of looking at what we can do to, um, to help rehabilitate women and to get them out of the prison system. Which reminds me of a question I probably should have asked earlier. You think the issue is different down south than it is up here in the north? You know, I'm not sure it is. Uh, definitely, you know, the South has been known for their mass incarceration and their, for, and their racial uh, disparities, right? But this is a prevalent, this, this problem is just everywhere. And I don't think it's any different um, in California or in New York than it is down here. Um, lawmakers have been um, unsuccessful in trying to deal with this mass incarceration, no matter if it's what region of the country it is. And so um, I, I don't think it's a regional problem. I, th- I think it's a problem, a massive incarceration problem throughout our nation. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Linda, Man- Linda Mancellis, Ph.D. Um, her new book, that new book being um, Presidents in Mass Incarceration, Choices at the Top, repercussions at the bottom. Can we find the book in the local bookstore, Linda? You can find it online. Uh, it's at Barnes & Noble, and it's on Amazon. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's, um, it, you, can, you can purchase it there. Do you have a website? Uh, I'm at Georgia Gwinnett College, yes, sir. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Linda Mancellis. Keep up the fight. Thank you, Peter, My very pleasure. much. My have pleasure. My pleasure. You too. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. The St. Patrick's Day Parade is getting ready to take off here in downtown Philadelphia on Market Street. So Arango Bra and Faith and Begora and all that good stuff, I wish them well as they celebrate the Irish ethnicity. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinion, Sunny's reactions. I know I'll be listening. And finally, there's my favorite quote from Virginia Woolf, the author. Author, I refuse to believe in aging. Rather, I believe in ever-altering one's aspect of the sun. Drug that out of the closet. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.